From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Here's something you probably didn't know about me. I am not a gamer. Shocking, I know. I never understood the appeal of dueling with gunslingers in the Wild West or trying to survive a post-apocalyptic hellscape ravaged by cannibalistic zombies. But then two things happened. I read, or more accurately devoured, the novel Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which has gaming at the core of the plot. And then I discovered the game Venba. Venba opens in 1988 and follows a couple from South India as they settle in Toronto, where they have to learn to navigate a new culture. Eventually, they have a child. Craving a taste of home, the son wants to make his mom's favorite dishes. But there's a problem. Vemba's mother's old cookbook is damaged, and many of the instructions have been smudged out. This is where you, the video game player, come in. Playing as the child, you must figure out how to prepare these lost recipes through trial and error. To talk about the experience of playing the video game, we asked our recording engineer, PJ Shahamat, who happens to be an avid gamer, to give it a whirl. Hi, PJ. Hi, Evan. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's this is so much fun. And I have to say that you lent me your Switch so I could play the game. Thank you so much. It's the very first game I've ever played. Happy to, happy to be your first experience there, Evan. <laughs> Can you play the game as any character besides Vamba or is it only as her? So for the majority of the game, you do play as Vamba, but... You do get to play as her son, Coven later in the game, but the majority of it, you're, you are acting as Venba. How would you describe her character? She's a very caring character. From what I gathered while playing the game, she expresses a lot of her love by making food for her loved ones. Like in the beginning, she was like in the very like first five minutes of the game, she was like dying on the couch sick and uh, her husband didn't have a meal. And she was like, just wait five minutes. I'll, I'll, get, I'll make you a meal. And when, like, you find out when Coven is sick, she makes him chicken soup. And this is also, like, during a time where she was going through a lot. So she's always expressing her love. She's always very caring. And that's really what I got from when I played the game. How is the game structured? Every game has obstacles. What obstacles did you face? I can tell you the ones I faced. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the obstacle, so a lot of the game really is just like, like a linear storyline with some dialogue options, but the, the main obstacles are like assembling the food. It's almost a puzzle. Uh, I, I don't come from experience of making South Indian food or Tamil food. So for me, it was all a new experience and the, the, the puzzle of putting the dishes together, like seeing like, oh, I have to swirl this dish over here. Or I have to put the oil in, then, then the, the rice batter in. All of that was just very new to me. So just getting from point A to point B was the biggest obstacle for me. Yeah, for me, aside from the fact that I'd never gamed before, so I had to get used to even this, the very simple controller interface of Switch. That was kind of interesting. But for me, it was really fascinating to make the food, even though for some of it, not all of it, some of it I was familiar with and had even made before, <laughs> but it's it's such a great exercise. I really enjoyed it. I actually can't wait 
to play it again. Do you remember any of the specific dishes that you made within the game that really sort of caught you that you found particularly intriguing or difficult? The 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 biryani was very difficult for me to do because I probably spent like 10 minutes going through every possible way of assembling the dish <laughs> except for the right way. Um, so that was probably the experience. That was the most difficult dish, but it also looked delicious to me. And the game does a really good job at making it look so good. And the sound design just makes you feel like you're in the kitchen with Venbo when she's making the dish as well. So I just thought that that dish was the most difficult to play, but also the most rewarding to to finish up. I'd love to give people a sense of what it's like to cook a dish in the game. We have some sound of you making rasa masala. Describe what you're doing here. Yeah, so before you start frying everything up, you have to mix water with the tamarind paste. You just do that up until you uh, you have like a good amount of mixture. And then afterwards, you have to kind of decode what Coven's grandmother's cookbook is saying. His tamal is not very great right now because he hasn't practiced in a while, so he has to decode things. So he's frying up some onions, some ginger garlic, some tomatoes. Um, and you have to do this all in order. Uh, and if you don't, you kind of just have to start all over again because I guess that's how cooking works. Um, I have to say that was one of my favorite parts of the game is it really mirrors the frustration of cooking and how if you do things in the wrong order or if you like don't sieve your flour enough mm-hmm. or you add too much water then you fail, but it it always gives you the option of um, like giving you a hint Mm -hmm. or letting you sort of just go through trial and error until you can find your way. What did you tend to do? I just kind of headbutted my way through all of it. And if I had to start over, I would just start over personally. Yeah, I have to say that after making the rasam, I just really wanted to go out and eat some. Yeah. It made all this entire, like, I think the night of I finished this game, I tried to find Southern Indian food, but there was just nothing in my area. So I had to settle for chicken tikka masala afterwards. But but it was, regardless, it was, uh, it made me hungry. The game is really less of a quest and more of an emotional and storytelling experience. Um... I'm curious what your thoughts and feelings were as you played the game, if you related at all to this story of immigrants and being an immigrant child. Yeah. So my my parents came to the United States. Uh, My dad came right before the Iranian Revolution and my mom came a little bit afterwards. And when the game starts, it really is uh, Venba and her husband, Pavelon, and they are in Canada and they're kind of just they're here and there on whether or not they want to like stay in the country or if they want to go back. For me, I I just kind of saw that as like this is the sacrifice that my parents made. They decided to go to a new country and to have to try to blend into this new culture and kind of like 
lose their culture a little bit, like lose access to their culture. So for me, I just kind of saw that, saw that as more of a sacrifice on my parents' end. And I saw a lot of myself in Coven as well. Um, I saw him being torn between two cultures, between the culture he's growing up with in school, but also his home life. Um, and this is all during a time where he just wants to feel like normal. Um, and I really resonated with that. And it was really cool to see just kind of the growth that Coven went through throughout the game. Yeah, I found the arc of um, Kevin, the son, pushing the parents away and pushing his mother's attempt to comfort him with food away for so many years. And then ultimately his embrace of it. So moving. Yeah, I like almost shed a tear there too. Because, I mean, I eventually went through that period where I was like, I like my culture. I like the food my parents make. I like the history, the culture that we have. And it was really cool to just kind of relive that through through Coven. Was there, have you had a lot of experience eating South Indian cuisine? And And if so, or if not, what about it that you learned from the game is now intriguing to you? So I, I haven't had a lot of experience, but one thing that stood out to me was that Venba and Pavalon, I saw that they were eating with their hands. And that piqued my interest because I saw they made it a point that Kavan was eating with a spoon. Yeah, I, I love that, particularly when uh, when Kavan isn't feeling so great and his mom feeds him with her fingers, stuffing mm-hmm. little bits into his mouth and then wiping off the bits of rice that have fallen. Yeah, that, that was a very cute moment. Thank you so much, PJ. Thank you for playing the game for us. Thanks for having me, and I'll play many more if you ask me to. <laughs> <laughs> that was PJ Shahamet, KCRW recording engineer and video game enthusiast. He's been discussing the new cooking game, Benba. So where did this idea for Vemba come from? After playing the game, I was eager to talk to Vemba's creator, Abi. Abi grew up playing video games in India, and it was when he moved to Canada at age 12 that he realized that games aren't just for kids. Not only do adults play them too, but video games can actually be a career. I asked him what inspired him to bring Vemba to life. The, the artist and I were working on, on a completely different game, actually. Uh, it was a very traditional action game that we were making. And one day I just had a thought about something that really bothered me when I was uh, younger. And that is an incident from my childhood when I went to my friend's house, who's also dumber like me, but uh, he's much more assimilated. And he speaks English so fluently that his mom asked me to translate what he said to her um, in Tamil. And that was very... Like, even at that age, that really bothered me because the idea of, like, needing a translator for your own son or their own son not being able to speak the language, I found that very troubling and interesting. And uh, I thought it would be good to make a game about that, that explore that feeling. Within minutes, I just had the whole idea of doing the entire game through cooking and uh, how much cooking means, especially in families where they have these broken connections, where there's like a very real literal language barrier. Food becomes the love language that's very dependent upon. So that idea was very compelling to me. And um, 
and then I talked about that with my artist and we stopped working on the game we were working on and uh, we started Benba. Were there other cooking or storytelling games that inspired you in terms of Vemba or did you and the team kind of come to it to create something completely new? There are definitely a lot of other cooking games we looked at, but what I found was lacking um, is that uh, those cooking games, they focused on the arcade mechanics of cooking. So things like um, pour the water correctly or pour the right measurements or chop the thing three times. I felt like that had two problems. Like one, that didn't capture what I thought was interesting about cooking, which is why the recipe steps are the way they are. So I wanted to, the player to think about the recipe while they're making the food. And the other thing is that those kind of arcade mechanics, they don't really suit an emotional story that we're trying to tell. And like in Menba, we're very careful um, to give the player a strong reason for why they cooked a dish that day and what it means to the different people in the house. Um, so in that sense, like we had to therefore take inspiration from other forms of media like and how they presented food and what it meant. I think when was maybe the first time cooking has been approached in this sort of way in a, in a video game. Why did you choose the the dishes that you did to feature in the game? Yeah, that was one of the most difficult difficult things to do because uh, I I knew the game would focus on South Indian cuisine because Indian cuisine is very broad, and I wanted to focus it on South Indian and specifically Tamil cuisine. But even that specific cuisine is much uh, like it's very vast and very diverse. And it was really hard to pick 10 or so recipes that really sum up the entire cuisine. And instead, I started to focus on what recipes were fun to make and what were interesting to make, like what led for good narrative moments or good gameplay moments. Um, One of my favorite dishes in the game to design was like a, a level where the players make something called puttu. Like, you know, Venba calls it like it it's like launching a rocket. Like that has a lot of narrative significance and it's really fun for the player to assemble that. The game also, it spans from the 1980s to 2016. So we also had to do research to make sure that the dishes, like do they actually make sense to cook in the 80s? For example, biryani, it uses a lot of different special speciality ingredients and it's very expensive. Like that probably makes much more sense to cook in 2006 uh, than it does in the 1980s. So we did filter recipes out like that. How has the Tamil community of gamers reacted to to the game? Yeah, so this is something that feels very serendipitous because even five years ago, uh, like a Tamil gaming community from India was barely existing. And uh, the, if they if it did exist, uh, the games they would play would be things like PUBG or uh, Fortnite. And um, the idea of gaming for stories or entertainment was very new there and it was still adopting. Um, but almost like as if it's paralleling the growth of our own studio or of our own game. The last three years, there's been an explosion of content creators and Tamar and all of those things. And they found out about Venba and they were very, very excited. A lot of the YouTubers, they played it with their moms and um, they wanted to showcase to their parents, like, you know, you don't think video games are not just about shooting. There's also games like this, you know. So their enthusiasm for the game was was really good to see. And there's so many little details we've, we've had in the game about Tumblr culture 
and references to popular Tamil movies. Uh, and they, they catch every single one. And uh, coming back to the YouTuber who played with his mom, um, when, when it came to the biryani level, which is a level that a lot of people struggle with, like she didn't even look at the clues or the recipe. Like she just told the, the son, like, hey, drag this in, in, in this order. And she just solved it like very trivially. And that made me really happy because I think that's a little bit of evidence that the recipes are actually authentic and, you know, we did our research. Thank you so much, Abhi. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. That was Abhi, the creator of the cooking video game Vemba. For a link to the game, head to our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, why is access to abundant cheap beef so entrenched in the American psyche? And what would it take to create a culture shift? One of my favorite vegan writers weighs in next. Welcome back to Good Food. When we remove meat from the center of our plates, what do we find? It's a question food writer Alicia Kennedy asked herself. How would our world look if meat returned to its former status as a luxury good? And why do so many Americans think that eating meat is a birthright? Alicia joins us for a bit of a history lesson and logic on why we should eat with the planet. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, we're just so thrilled that your book came out and that you were able to make the time so early in your book tour epic. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, of course. You flat out say in the book that you, you say, quote, I don't care about meat. When did you give it up and how do you remember it being part of your meals growing up? I gave meat up in 2011, which was a bit later in life than I think people would expect. I was 25, 26 when I gave it up. And when I was growing up, it was a huge part of my life. Uh, My grandmother passed when I was quite young, around five years old. And the memories I have of her are about lamb chops. They're about lobster. They're about just eating, eating, eating. And then growing up, my mother made chicken cutlets all the time. She made London broil all the time. It was just a huge part of everything for me. So when I gave it up, it was really a rupture in terms of my relationships with people in my life. They really had to get accustomed to that. When they found out it wasn't temporary, it was very traumatic in some ways for everyone around me. But it was just something that I had been sort of always drawn to. It was it was a, a way of life that I had been interested in throughout my teenage years, but could never really commit to because I wasn't in control of my food that I had. I, I couldn't really cook. But once I was out of that zone and was a full adult, full-time job, an apartment and was able to cook my own meals, I was like, let me give this a try. And I did love it as much as I kind of always thought I would. You write that given the reality of food apartheid, which keeps mainly black, brown and indigenous communities from having access to fresh fruits and vegetables, making overtures about going to the farmer's market is wildly out of touch with reality. Where do we begin to tackle food justice and the panoply of issues surrounding meat consumption when availability of good fresh produce is kept out of the hands of many? I think we start by reversing the amount of money we're allowing 
large industrial meat companies and agribusiness to obtain and put that into fresh produce, into food access, into programs that support food justice in various places, in various communities. There's an idea that meat is the cheap thing to eat and the accessible thing to eat, but this is a manufactured idea through these subsidies, through various programs that allow these companies to keep the cost of meat artificially low and wildly available and scaled up to a rate that is ecologically destructive. So when we talk about, oh, but maybe people might not be able to have access to fresh produce or beans or legumes and that sort of thing, you know, these are all by design. It's not necessarily a natural condition. That's why folks in food justice stopped saying food desert and started to say food apartheid because a desert is naturally occurring. And we're putting, you know, $38 billion per year in subsidies back into industrial animal agriculture. If we took some of that and uh, used it for various regional food justice programs, I think there there could be a very different uh, story to be told. Can you talk about why beef is such a hot button issues for um, Republicans and maybe those more to the right edge? It seems to intertwine with so much symbolism and notions of virility and affluence. Yes, and and that's true throughout history. To to have meat is to have money, to have the status and luxury to obtain meat. And the thing that happened in the United States is that beef was made cheap and accessible and plentiful. And so that gave a lot of people a sense that this is what the American dream was built on. You know, it's built on a lot of things, but one of those things is cheap beef. And so a lot of people have a very strong attachment to it as representative of the possibilities and the potential of you know, America to make people gain status and wealth. And now we see that there are studies that show a strong attachment to meat eating, um, to beef specifically, represents an attachment to dominance ideologies and a unwillingness to accept cultural change. And so the this leans a bit more reactionary, a bit more conservative in terms of the the folks that are very attached to beef, are going to be very attached to the idea that a cowboy and cattle and a very well-stocked meat section at the supermarket represents something intrinsic about being American and being strong and having a lot of power. This is why, you know, when President Trump at the beginning of the pandemic invoked the Defense and Powers Act to keep meat production happening at the scale at which people were accustomed to, it was very telling because even though there were so many folks suffering in meat processing, even before the pandemic, but people were getting sick at a very high rate in meat processing facilities and they were not being provided with the proper protections or the proper precautions and testing, et cetera. Even though all of this, it was maintained that beef was so essential that it had to keep going, it had to keep being created. And so that's a very recent example of how attached to beef and attached to meat and ample meat the American kind of ideology is. Do you think that this is one reason it is so difficult for Congress to dial subsidies on beef and the corn that's grown for feed back? Why it's so hard? 
Absolutely. It's a really deep, deep cultural significance, this role that meat plays in the American psyche and the role that ample meat plays in the American psyche. It is something that, you know, folks used to write home to their family in Europe and say, I eat meat every day. It was something to quite literally write home about. So when you take that away, folks feel like this is kind of the first brick to fall in terms of the nation's strength. I think anytime a politician mentions anything about climate change and food, there's a, you know, hysteria over the removal of beef from people's plates, the removal of hamburgers from people's hands. And so, you know, it's very, very cultural. And and that's why I think it's so significant to kind of discuss what it would mean for the culture to shift because if the culture shifts, then perhaps the political and economic tide can come behind that. Yeah, that's that's so true. So interesting. And speaking about cultural shifts, when vegetables like kale or Brussels sprouts go mainstream, so many people become puzzled. Why do you think that is? I think we're so accustomed to commercials like beef. It's what's for dinner, pork, the other white meat but we're not accustomed to anyone making vegetables cool or it's only happened a couple of times, so it's very perplexing. These things don't have as much of that deep-rooted like sense of cachet. These are supposed to be side dishes. These are supposed to be afterthoughts to a lot of folks. And so when they become the main attraction, you know, as as has hap- happened with Brussels sprouts, you know, and, and that was a really interesting story because it was a new new type of Brussels sprout that was grown and then it was prepared in a new way. And But maybe if we multiplied that Brussels sprout story or if the kale lobby <laughs> that didn't really exist did exist or the excitement that happens every summer around heirloom tomatoes and beautiful tomato sandwiches, if we saw that kind of foment around lots of different vegetables and lots of different fruits and grains and legumes, that is part of what a cultural shift would look like. It's that that excitement being sustained over time and over a diversity of ingredients. Yeah, I think we forget as eaters that we, in fact, are our own lobbyists. Yes. <laughs> Can you speak to the bifurcated nature of embracing plant-based foods? On one hand, it's a celebration of the earth, of soil, of kind of like a groundedness of humans Mm -hmm. to our place. And then there are, as you say, quote, products that promise innovation, that continue to hide the planet, to hide the joy of cooking, to indeed make... um, You talk about Carol J. Adams' concept of the absent referent, the earth itself, the new absent referent, which I found so interesting. I mean, this tension has always made me uncomfortable, kind of this brave new world of food touted as the future of food. No, and, and it's always been very, very troubling to me because it also complicates what the idea of plant-based eating would be for most folks. And I think it's been a big turnoff to a lot of people, a lot of omnivores, to hear plant-based food only in the context of products you buy at the store or the availability of products or, you know, bioreactors to, you know, make cell-based meat. And so I think it's done a huge detriment, you know, it's, it's made it part of the conversation in a more broad way to talk about Impossible Burgers, Beyond Meat and Lab Meat and that sort of thing. But at the same time, it's made it more alien and more foreign to folks who wouldn't really mind probably eating a veggie burger every once in a while, whether it's an impossible burger or something made with carrots and quinoa. But 
if you position the future of food as just strange little products or you know proteins made in a in a vat that makes people very uncomfortable and it makes people wary of the idea of plant-based eating because it doesn't seem like something they would have control over it seems like something a company would own and be perhaps opaque about it just makes it a lot more complicated and a lot more off-putting when you don't talk about plant-based food as most of the food that's available to humans on this planet. Uh, and you talk about it as products from corporations that you have to go buy in the store. And I think we've seen a lot of folks be turned off by that. And there are studies that show that if you put plant-based foods on a menu and do not market as vegan or vegetarian, people are more likely to order those items. Whereas if you market vegan or vegetarian, then it comes with a lot of baggage and a lot of weirdness around it, and people are less likely to order those things. And so I think that we're seeing that play out as well with the plant-based food industry and food tech industry, where folks think of these things as products and technologies rather than food. And I think that has done a big detriment. I'll raise a glass to that. Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Puerto Rico-based food and drink writer Alicia Kennedy. We've been discussing her first book, No Meat Required, The Cultural History and Culinary Future of Plant-Based Eating. In a minute, food writer Memo Torres is back with five restaurant picks to get you out of your eating rut. Expect big flavors and a punch of spice. That's next. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. If you want to eat well in greater LA, you can choose to go to high places that have a buzz or go more casual. And mine are ubiquitous strip malls and seemingly under-the-radar neighborhoods where if you know where to look, delicious eats are everywhere. Food journalist Memo Torres is determined to find these gems for us. He's mapping five new places a month for his Let's Eat guide on Apple Maps. And first up, he has a Somali restaurant for us. It's called uh, Banadir Somali, and it's I consider it like Inglewood's hidden gem. It's been there for years. I actually grew up like right down the street. My cousin lived around the corner, and like I never even like noticed it. Until a friend of mine who uh, pointed it out to me, he's like, you've never been there? I'm like, no. The facade's faded. The lettering on the sign is gone. But as soon as you walk in, you're greeted by this big, bright yellow wall with a very simple menu. They only have like five or six dishes. It's the same dish. It's just different meat. It's like a like a roasted goat or you can have a chicken. You can have a beef. I personally really loved the goat. It's tender, has these roasted ends. You know how they say the meat falls off the bone? I mean, the bone falls off the meat on this one. The meat stays intact, but the bone just comes off. It's seasoned so perfectly well. It's served with rice. And the curious thing in Somalia, they'll, they'll serve you like a fresh banana. Not a plantain, like a banana. And you peel it and you mush, mash that into the rice. They give you this green salsa that is just it's unforgiving you have to be careful with that green salsa but it's just this wonderful like big large plate as as long as your arm of flavor perfect goat dish it's those kind of places where like they're just literally the definition of a hidden gem i understand they have a soup also yeah, they start you off with like a very basic vegetable soup. It almost tastes like it's a chicken broth, but it's not. It's, it's you know, it's very hearty. And they also have tea. They have a big kettle of tea. It's very sweet. 
and you can drink all the tea you want there. You just go and serve yourself. I love it. So now let's head to an Armenian place. Yes. <laughs> I had to put this place on there because my significant other, my Serilis, as you say in Armenian, is uh, uh, she's my Armenian queen. And when I, you know, finally got to meet her family, one of the first things they really pushed on me, and I think they were trying to mess with me, you know, to be honest with you, because <laughs> they all wanted me to try Basturma, which if you don't know, it's a, it's a really strongly seasoned dried beef. It's somewhere between like a salami and a pastrami and a jerky. You, you can see it as something that's spread on a charcuterie board. But it's very pungent. It's a very strong flavor. And they'll even joke that they'll, you know, they usually won't have it just by itself because you're, you will smell like Basturma the next day, according to them. <laughs> but the one way they all do recommend to have it is with eggs. And so I found this one spot that started off as a street stand up in North Hollywood. Um, it's called uh, Bread and Be- Breakfast. And they recently just opened up a brick and mortar in Burbank, just right next door. Um, and they make fantastic breakfast burritos with like soju and other you know, Armenian proteins. Um, but they have a Basturma one. And I actually love it. And I think if you start re- you know, following my list on here, you'll... You'll see the pattern. I love strong flavors. So when they can take Basturma and tame it in a breakfast burrito, which I think is just, it's so L.A. in my opinion. It's something I would love people to try out just so they can get a little flavor of Armenia. Yeah, you definitely have a theme here of high spice, I could say. And <laughs> we we see that in the next pick, which is Ethiopian. Yes, <laughs> little Ethiopia down over on Fairfax. Uh, Lalibela, which is, you know, for people that have, you know, been following the food culture in Los Angeles, it's not a new place. It's been recommended. It's been on, you know, Jonathan Gold's 101. It's been on LA Tacos Rogue 99. Um, but, you know, for some reason, a lot of people still don't stop by and try out little Ethiopia. And I always try to recommend people stop by Lalibela. And the reason why I like Lalibela too is, is, um, when I've gone a couple of times, I've talked to the staff there and they've told me it's basically their grandma. The grandma's in the kitchen. She's the one making the food. And one of the reasons why they decided to make the restaurant is because they wanted to have a kitchen where their grandma could be able to share her cuisine. If you go in a group, I recommend you get that veggie utopia, which is this big anjira uh, bread. And, you know, they'll put a bunch of little veggies, chickpeas, uh, like little stews all around it. And you can tear the injera and scoop it up by your hand. Um, but when I go alone, again, strong flavor, a very complex fare, I get the Doro Wat, which is their chicken stew. And it's just, it's so complex, so spicy, it's just sultry. It's absolutely delicious. It's just, you know, a very filling and satisfying dish to have. And now we're going to a place that's in everybody's comfort zone in L.A., and that is El Barrio Cantina. Why have you put this on the list? You know, I when I, you know, we were talking about my Armenian queen earlier, my lady, my significant other. When we go out to places, and I have to admit, she has a more picky palate than I do. <laughs> and there's very few places in, that we've gone to in Los Angeles where she's actually been pleased and wants to go back. And El Barrio Cantina is actually one of those places. Ulysses uh, Pineda down there, 
the chef, I just think he's another one of those young up and coming chefs, um, the great minds of Los Angeles. He has a very unique approach to Mexican food. You know, he tends to modernize it and he executes things very well. He, he's, he's done like a guava, barbecue, beef rib. He does different things. What he has right now is like a, a birria lasagna, which I thought he executed it excellently. So when we go down there to eat, we'll either sit down there and go through all his tapas and his wonderful menu of cocktails. And if we really want to eat, we'll just dig into one of those dishes. It sounds so good. I think a birria lasagna is kind of genius. Yeah, it is very genius. It works so well because, you know, birria is one of those things that works so well with so many different things. You've seen the birria ramen, you've seen the birria egg rolls. A birria lasagna was just brilliant, in my opinion. So now we get to Moose Craft, which, oh my goodness, so (laughs) epic. (laughs) It is. It definitely is. It's Texas right in our own backyard. You know, people will say Los Angeles doesn't have a comparable barbecue scene to Texas. Now, I have been to Texas and I've had barbecue in Texas, in Memphis, in Kansas, Oklahoma. I just got to say that L.A.'s barbecue scene holds its own against all of that. And, you know, a lot of we have a lot of pop-ups here in Los Angeles. We'll have like A's Barbecue. We'll have Bart's Barbecue. We have... Heritage, which is the big name right now down in the the OC. But right here in our own backyard, we have Moose Craft. And I think he does exceptional Texas barbecue that will hold its own, if not beat out a lot of original Texas barbecue. The flavors are perfect. The meats are smoked expertly. He has a great sauce. He has these beautiful sides that just mesh well with everything. But what I tell people is if you go there, try the meats. But always look for his burgers. He has a fantastic burger, and every now and then he'll have a special burger on the side. If you see the burger on the menu, get that alongside with his dishes. Alongside? I don't even know how you'd manage to finish all that. <laughs> well, you can't go to Moose and not try all the meats. I mean, I mean, if you're a food lover like me, you're going to want to try the brisket. You're going to want to try the pulled pork. You're going to want to try it all. And the sides are just amazing as well. Yes, yes. The macaroni and cheese, the slaw, the, the potatoes. The esquites. Oh, the esquites, yeah. I mean, well, the owner is a Chicano. He's a, you know, a Mexican ancestry. So he does add a little bit of his flavors in there. Well, thank you so much. I, I really am enjoying your maps and it's really fun to hear what um, the new ones are every month. So I'm so happy you're here with us. Hey, and so am I, and I hope people will go and try these places out. Give them a shot. I certainly will. <laughs> that was food writer Memo Torres sharing five of his recent restaurant picks with us. He updates his Let's Eat guide on Apple Maps every month. You can also find his byline at LA Taco. The 2023 edition of Gustavo and KCRW's Great Tortilla Tournament is done and dusted. And if you weren't there this past Sunday, you should know, history was made. As one of the judges, I can tell you the competition was stiff. And by stiff, I mean soft, chewy, pliable, and delicious. But as tournament founder Gustavo Ariano always says, there can be only one. In the end, 
Taco Maria took home the Golden Tortilla, becoming the first ever two-time winner of the Golden Tortilla. Here to tell us how it all went down is Carlos Salgado, the chef and owner of Taco Maria, along with Tortilla Tournament founder Gustavo Ariano. Hello, gentlemen. Hola, Evan. Hi, Evan. Carlos, how does it feel to be the first ever two-time winner of our Tortilla Tournament? Um, amazing, honestly. The competition was was really intense this year. Like, there's been so many excellent tortillas happening, like all over, not just Southern California, but like all over the country and seemingly all over the world. Like, the tortilla revolution is like really going full speed. I think the circumstances were like just right. the The corn uh, this year was was really beautiful. The dried corn was really beautiful this year. I got some amazing um, help uh, from my friends over at Gusto Bread in Long Beach, so that I could cook and grind my masa. And I had um, amazing help from uh, some friends and former employees of Taco Maria um, to execute um, on Sunday, the day of the tournament. So. I just feel very profoundly lucky and like really, really happy to hang another golden tortilla next to the first. We should say that you were using the kitchen at Gusto because Taco Maria's temporarily closed. Yeah, that's right. We closed after uh, 10 really amazing years. We had a 10-year lease. We had the uh, option, the possibility of extending uh, in that location. And we felt that we had done the work that we set out to do, that we had ambitions for the restaurant that weren't going to fit into that location in Costa Mesa. And so we thought it, it was a really good time to pause, take a break, reflect on the past work, imagine you know the incredible work that we could do uh, in the future, and then let that inform the space, the location, and like the scale and the scope of the next version of Taco Maria, which you know we hope to start working on right away after the new year. Gustavo, with Taco Maria's historic win this year, you've had to institute a new rule. Tell us about that. Yes, I. What's amazing about the tortilla tournament up until this year, you had always had different winners. Uh, just to show, it's just, it's just like any sporting event. You can sometimes you'll get these dynasties that go on win five, six times in a row. And I know, especially like Carlos, when I told them that he was going to be in the Fuerte Four, initially he said, well, you know, we don't have the restaurant anymore. So I kind of feel uncomfortable that, you know, that we're not around for the moment. So we'd rather give it to, say, an up and coming tortilla, you know, a tortilla out there. But I said, nope, sorry, you guys are the champions. You guys get to go for it one more time. That said, Carlos, you're amazing. Eres compadre, amigo, hermano mío, but we can't have you winning every single year. So from now on forth, if you're a two-time winner, you are not allowed in the tournament unless it is the Tortilla Tournament of Champions. So every four years, uh, we did this in 21. Next one's going to be 25. Everyone who's in the tournament is ranked by aggregate. So how many wins have you had in the entirety of the tournament? So Taco Maria can uh, come back in 25. And oh, is everyone going to be ready to go after them? (laughs) Wow. That's that's true. I imagine that being like the King of Iron Chef uh, tournament, like big epic finale with like lots of uh, orchestral 
sort of. Uh, oh, I mean, hey, th- this time we, I started, I launched the tortilla tournament at the beginning of the Fuerte Four with also Sprach Zarathustra by Strauss, aka 2001 in Space Odyssey theme. Next year, we're going to start off with Aaron Copeland's Fanfare for the Common Man. <laughs> I love you, Gustavo. Let's turn to the four finalists in this year's tortilla tournament, aka the Fuerte Four. Run them down for us and walk our audience through how the judging played out. So the judges, of course, were you, Evan, uh, KCRW Chingona, Connie Alvarez, uh, KCRW Tortilla Scout, Sean Vukan, and our guest judge, Chris Estrada, the star of uh, Hulu's incredible show, This Fool, about South L.A. And the four finalists were Taco Maria, obviously, for corn. They went up against Pan Victoria, this mini chain of Guatemalan restaurants in mid-city and Inglewood, and they made history just by showing up. They were the first ever Central American tortilla to make it into the Fuerte Four. You, in fact, chose them because they're thick, they're delicious, and they're just spongy in a way that Mexican tortillas, even the most gordita ones, can never possibly achieve. And so Taco Maria beat them. It was it was close, but Taco Maria just had the edge. On the flower side, you had Home State, which has made it into the SOA. In other words, the eight finalists every single year. Only Taco Maria has done that as well. So they were the flower category against Heritage Barbecue in, in San Juan Capistrano with another location in Oceanside. Now, Heritage Barbecue is the best barbecue in California, but when you're doing all this brisket, well, you're going to have a lot of leftover tallow. So a chef and owner, Danny Castillo, is like, hmm, maybe I should try tortillas and a lark. Well, that lark got him into the Fuerte Four. And not only that, allowed him to be home state. So the final was an all-OC final, by the way. Twice in the past three years, it's been all Orange County. So take that, Los Angeles. Talk more young corn, Heritage Barbecue on flour. And while we loved Heritage Barbecue's I don't know. A tallow tortilla is just on a completely other level when it comes to your fat. It was smoky. It was delicious. It could have used a little bit more pliability on my part. And Taco Maria's blue corn tortilla. I know you, Evan and Connie and the rest said you've had this was the best Taco Maria's ever had. Again, Carlos is a brother to me. He's done better before. But Carlos on a quote-unquote off day is like, oh, Sandy Koufax uh, only pitching eight innings instead of nine. So Taco Maria all the way. They win the golden tortilla. Hey, man, that that masa was made under duress. (laughs) Well, it was incredible. It was never less incredible. But but I have to tell you, you know, because Gustavo lives so close to Taco Maria, he's had innumerably more Taco Maria blue corn tortillas than I have. But it was interesting to hear you say that that, particular batch of blue corn was beautiful because I feel like I tasted that, that this year, the flavor just really popped out, which was really fun. And I loved passing Pan Victoria through to the final four because it was such an unexpected tortilla for me. And I have to say that tasting it at the tournament was a total vindication for that move on my part. Because, you know, when you're judging these at home and you're heating things up on the comal and they're a couple days old, maybe, you're always second guessing yourself. But when I tasted that freshly griddled, made the same day, thick, fluffy Central American tortilla, it was just even better than than what I thought about it at home. I'm so happy to just shine a light on it. All those tortillas were incredibly delicious, and I agree. 
with both you and Gustavo that I would gladly eat one of those as the central part of my meal for dinner any night of the week. So, Gustavo, what can we expect for next year? A vegan tortilla division, gluten-free? Oh, my God. There is so much going on for next year. All I can disclose for now, as a reminder, we expanded our San Diego Invitational to 32 tortillas. That's going to continue, except now I'm going to swing over to Imperial County to get more tortillas. And look, uh, Carlos put it perfectly. Tortilla culture in the United States is stronger than ever before, and it's getting better and better every single year. The home of the tortilla tournament is always going to be Southern California. Always, because we're the best place in the United States for tortillas. But slowly but surely, we are expanding it. Maybe in a decade, we finally take on our evil brother separated at birth, Texas. (laughs) It's so awesome. It's just such a wonderful contest and it's filled with so much joy. Thank you both. Thank you, Evan. No, thank you, Evan. Gracias. That was Chef Carlos Salgado of Taco Maria and journalist Gustavo Arellano discussing Taco Maria's second win at KCRW and Gustavo's Great Tortilla Tournament. Go to kcrw.com slash goodfood to read Gustavo's story about this year's finale. The market report is on deck, so stay close. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. It's off to the market we go. Let's check in with Jillian Ferguson, who is in Santa Monica now with this report. This is Jillian Ferguson with a market report. There are a handful of chefs who seemingly never miss the Wednesday farmer's market, and one of them is Jason Neroni. Jason is the chef partner at The Rose, which particularly during the summer months might just be the busiest restaurant in L.A., and he's also just opened Best Bet in the former A-frame space on Washington Boulevard in Culver City. Hi, chef. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So I get the sense, Jason, that you are always tinkering with the menu and with your dishes. When I first heard about Best Bet, I thought it was going to be a pizza restaurant, but then I checked out the menu and it is so much more than that. How do you describe it? Uh, I like to quantify it, tell, I don't know, it is a... How about this? It's a restaurant that serves pizza. (laughs) There you go. That's all we need to know. So you're also the executive chef at The Rose in Venice. And I'm curious about how these two restaurants are in dialogue. I know you shop for both of those places here at the market. So maybe you can pick an ingredient that you're shopping for today and then tell us how it appears on the menu at The Rose and how it appears on the menu at Best Bet. Absolutely. Well, we are transitioning into fall, even though it might not feel like it most days here in Southern California because summer technically starts in like September, it feels like. But uh, Brussels sprouts are starting to come in. And that is hands down has been one of the most famous and most sought after dishes at the Rose. And uh, we've had different types over the years. And this year we are doing it with a pickled jalapeno yogurt and we take cheddar and dehydrate it and make a powder because when you cook Brussels sprouts really hard they should have the smell of popcorn and so we dust it in this uh in this powder that we make out of cheddar and glaze it in apple cider vinegar gastrique which is like a sweet and sour that sounds awesome yes I feel like you have almost made your career on Brussels sprouts here in Los Angeles they were definitely the most popular dish at Superba which predated the rose and I understand you also have them on the menu at best bet what are you doing there just recently um, there we are tossing in lemon olive oil and throwing them in the wood oven and getting them all nice and smoky and uber charred and then when they come out they actually are going with a black garlic molasses. And we take, again, we take black olives there and we dehydrate them until they get nice and crunchy. It takes like about five days to get all that oil and everything out of them. 
and we turn that into a powder. And so it has this like briny, umami kind of flavor. So it's, it's, you know, it's like modern Italian for lack of a better. So you mentioned a couple things. One, we were talking about how to cook the Brussels sprouts so they get that char. If we don't have a wood oven at home, how do you recommend we achieve that? Well, I am a dad as well, on the run constantly. So I'm a big fan of sheet pan cooking and all at once put it in there. So I just preheat my oven about 425. I put a little olive oil down. I cut them in half and I put them cut side down. It's important to do that and put it in a hot oven and just sit back and kind of wait. And it takes a good 15 minutes or so, but you have to let them really, really brown and you'll know that they're there when they smell like popcorn. Okay, awesome. I also want to go back to that black garlic mention. That's a, an ingredient that I hear chefs talk about a lot. Can you just explain what it is? Do you make it? How do you achieve black garlic? You can make it, but it's much easier to buy because <laughs> it takes like months. So they take garlic and they pretty much bury it and it ferments and it turns black and it takes on this molasses-esque flavor profile. It's very unctuous and umami in its, in its base. So it takes away kind of like the sting of garlic, but it keeps that, that flavor profile, but also very sweet. We take it and just literally dehydrate it for that, for that powder or, and or we take the molasses and we stew it with sugar and cook it down and then puree it, add a little vinegar to it. And then that really kind of like bumps it up. And it's like, a, if you love balsamic vinegar, I, I would put this over any balsamic vinegar any day of the week, just because it's such a different texture and or flavor profile. Very cool. Thank you, Jason. Absolutely. That was Jason Neroni. He's the chef partner at both The Rose in Venice and the newly opened Best Bet on Washington Boulevard in Culver City. Best Bet opens for dinner at five o'clock every night of the week. As the weather shifts from summer to fall, Southern Californians are treated to lots and lots of passion fruit. You can see the vines and those mesmerizing flowers climbing fences all over town, but it takes a special touch to perfect them. Nick Brown is the farmer behind Rincon Tropics, and he's back at the Wednesday market this week with a table loaded up with passion fruit and dragon fruit. Hi. How's it going? It is great to have you back here. So passion fruit loves to grow in Southern California. My kids are always trying to run around the neighborhood foraging it. But when we do find it in our neighborhood, it is never like as big and heavy and beautiful or delicious as the ones that you grow. So what's the secret? There's a couple of factors there. So a lot of the neighborhood vines get picked up by the neighbors. Uh, they don't always get to the full maturity that we have on the ranch. And uh, part of that is the pollination. So the more the flower is pollinated, the more full the fruit will be. So heavy, juicy, more pulp inside. We definitely have hives up on the ranch that help encourage a, a heavier fruit set as much as possible. We don't want every flower to be pollinated just because that will be too much taxation on the, the plant. We'd prefer sort of a nice happy medium where there's a good amount of fruit for production's sake, but not too much because uh, the plant then gets stressed out and the fruit can sometimes shed prematurely, which you don't want that either. So a nice happy medium is what we strive for, but we also just get what we get. Wow, such a delicate balance. So I remember when I moved to California, I really wasn't familiar with passion fruit. I didn't really know what to do with them. For someone who is new to this fruit, how do you describe what it looks like and what you like to do with it? So they naturally color up on the vine. They get a nice purple. The variety we grow gets to a nice deep dark purple. 
and at that point it will detach from the vine. So that is technically a ripe passion fruit. It'll be smooth, it'll be mistaken for plums quite often uh, on my table here. And as they continue to mature, they will get wrinkly. As they wrinkle up, they're getting sweeter and a little less acidic. I like to just cut them open in half, scoop them out. They're great in cocktails. They make really good desserts, curds, pastries, cakes, vinaigrettes, um, anything like that. They're extremely versatile as an ingredient. Oh, absolutely. And I want to mention for anyone listening who does not live near the Santa Monica Farmer's Market that you do ship. I get this question all the time about which farmers ship, and I can confirm that there is nothing like receiving a USPS box full of passion fruit from Nick. It's always a good mail day. Nick, thank you so much. My pleasure. Great to see you. That was Nick Brown of Rincon Traffics. He is at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market on Wednesdays for a short period of time, but he is always online. Find him at rincontropics.com and treat yourself or a friend to a box of fruit shipped right to your door. I promise you won't regret it. For the Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Brush. And a special thanks to Laura Kondorajan and Gary Messiha. I'm Evan Kleiman, and by the time you listen to this, I will be in Pisa eating peachy, the Tuscan hand-rolled spaghetti, or maybe a great bowl of bean soup. But I'll be back next week, at least in your earbuds, with an all-new episode of Good Food. Good Food.